0: Uh, we are hopefully uh, for the rest of our time today going to try and reorient ourselves with where we are at uh, in the book of Isaiah and make uh, some little bit of forward progress here, uh, kind of get, picking up where we left off at the end of the spring. So I know most of you probably don't remember where that was. I didn't. I had to go back and listen to some of the previous uh, classes which are available on the website, and I would highly recommend um, going and listening to those uh, that Dr. Master taught Uh, Let me pray before we uh, dive in pray for our time together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do, uh, we praise you, uh, we glorify your name, we thank you uh, for gathering us this day as your people. Uh, Thank you for this day of worship uh, when we can hear your word preached and we can sing praises to you and pray together as your people. We do ask, Lord, that you would uh, bless our worship, that it would be honoring and pleasing to you that Christ would be lifted high and we pray especially that you would also use all of these things to strengthen our faith would you give us your spirit now to help understand help us understand your word as uh, Isaiah has uh, written it for us help us to know uh, what he intended his original uh, hearers to understand but also where then how it applies in our own lives and we pray uh, especially that you'd help us to know how to live in this world Uh, As the people of God, Uh, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So, um, hopefully, some of you were uh, out in the gym a couple of weeks ago when Dr. Master kind of gave an overview of this class. Uh, So, some of this will be familiar if you were there. Um, But Isaiah, uh, as he says in the very opening verse, is ministering during the reigns of Uzziah, King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. and actually, he, he is commissioned at the end of uh, Uzziah's reign when, when Uzziah dies. Uh, but we know from other passages in scripture that for the most part, Uzziah was a good king. He did stumble at one point uh, by going into the temple himself. Um, but overall, Uzziah was a good king, followed by Jotham, who also is a good king. Um, personally, followed the Lord, though it does say he did not remove the high places. So those continue to be a stumbling block to the people uh, of Judah. And then Ahaz is a wicked king, uh, one of the, the very worst, but he's followed by Hezekiah, who also is a very godly king. So these are the, the kings that are reigning uh, during Isaiah's very long ministry. And the situation that they're in kind of geopolitically, uh, as Dr. Master said, is the Lord has placed his people uh, right in between Egypt in the south and Assyria or, or Babylon, in the north, so they're in a little bit of a precarious position, right? They're always at threat from both the north and the south. Um, though in some of these, uh, some in, during some of these reigns, there's actually quite a bit of um, peace and prosperity. There's always that looming threat that they're dealing with, and especially then uh, when Assyria takes the northern kingdom, Israel, captive, that brings them even closer, right, to Judah. Uh, so there's always. Uh, the question being asked of both the kings, but also the people of Judah, and that is who who do they trust in? Where and whom do they trust? Where will they place their trust? Do they trust the Lord in the midst of these challenges and these um, difficult circumstances, uh, or uh, are they going to trust themselves? Or are they going to look to political alliances with other nations uh, for 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 trust or for strength or for? where they're going to build their foundation. Um, the other thing that the early chapters of Isaiah uh, kind of bring to light is that the Lord is concerned with, with um, the way that we worship him. Uh, and he's concerned with his own glory. So these are some of the important themes. Um, and we're still in the first sort of horizon uh, of Isaiah uh, that Dr. Master spoke of. He said there's kind of three horizons to this book. So the first 39 chapters is this horizon that's, that's really a very near horizon, uh, and that is the, the 8th century BC, Judah, Assyria on the rise, this kind of historical setting. Then, starting in um, chapter 40 through chapter 55, uh, there is this horizon of in the midst of exile. So Isaiah is talking about when the people of Judah are taken away uh, as um, discipline for their sins. And then from chapters 50 through 66 there's this even more distant horizon of the time between the promise and the fulfillment, uh, which will be very, very applicable for our own time as well. But even in these earlier chapters, there's things for us to learn. Uh, so the first 12 chapters, uh, Isaiah sets up kind of his message to, uh, to Judah, introduces some important themes. And then uh, in chapters 13 through roughly 35, there are these series of oracles and woes, and that's where we're at. Uh, right now and we'll, where we'll be looking today. Um, and then in 36 to 39, there is the uh, example of Hezekiah. So we get a little bit more of a historical detail around Hezekiah and his, his interactions with Isaiah. So we're, as I said, we're in chapters, um, in that section of oracles and woes, and um, Dr. Master spent a couple of Sundays uh, looking at the first two cycles of these three cycles that go from chapter 13 through chapter 27. So 13 to 20 is some specific oracles against the surrounding nations. Isaiah begins with Babylon, um, and then he goes uh, through a a series of other nations in the surrounding areas, and he ends with Egypt, which makes sense, right? Again, it's that Babylon in the north, Egypt in the south. They're the big threats. Uh, But Dr. Master has also mentioned numerous times that these oracles, though they're against the surrounding nations, one of the kind of unusual things about it is Isaiah is preaching these oracles um, in Judah. So the people he's preaching against are not really there and not really hearing this, right? But uh, what he said is that these oracles are meant as a mirror to kind of hold up in front of uh, Judah's own face, right? And for us as well. The sins that are being uh, denounced, we can also look and say, in what ways am I like that? How do I see those sins in my in my own uh, in my own life? Um, and one of them, uh, in particular, especially, um, is the sin of pride. So, if you look at uh, chapter thirteen, verse eleven, this is in the oracle against Babylon. Isaiah says, "I will punish the world for its." evil and the wicked for their iniquity I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless so pride in particular is called out um, in the sin of the Babylonians and it's meant again to to cause us to say where where is there pride in my own life Um, in 21 to 23 a little bit shorter section there's another cycle of oracles and it again begins with Babylon Uh, And this time it ends with Tyre. Tyre um, isn't one of those that we often think immediately of being a powerhouse, but Tyre was kind of the financial capital uh, of that world in that region. Um, So they are an important nation, and they are also called out for their pride. So if you look at um, Isaiah 23, verse 9, The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Uh, so again, that setting themselves up against the Lord in their pride, um, the Lord will bring them down because of that. And interestingly, in this second cycle, Isaiah explicitly does stick Jerusalem into uh, these uh, denouncements. So it's uh, he refers to it as the Valley of Vision in chapter 22, but this is, uh, an oracle that he preaches against Jerusalem themselves. So if it wasn't clear from the first cycle of oracles, hey, this, these are things that you're guilty of as well, he makes it explicit in the second cycle uh, of oracles. So what are the, some of the lessons then from these uh, first couple of cycles? One of the big things that Dr. Master pointed out is Isaiah is Isaiah's really laying out a philosophy of history. Right? This is the way that the Lord uh, moves... World events, it's for his purposes. Uh, he is caring about his plans. It's his will, it's his work, it's his power that are doing these things. Though he's using means, he's using historical means, right? Um, he's using the nations uh, that are there of that day to carry out his plan, and he raises up a nation or a king to, to accomplish his purposes. And once that king or that nation is no longer serving his purposes, he brings them down, removes them from the stage, so to speak, right? Um, and that's still true today. We can we can rest. God's people are meant to rest in that fact that the Lord is guiding all of these things to His end. Um, the uh, Doctor Master had had quoted uh, Alec McKeer, uh one of the commentators, saying that um, chapters thirteen to twenty seven they take the principles, blessings, and warnings of chapters one to twelve. And they move them on to the next stage and assert that God is is really moving history to his end, right? Uh, And one of the ways we can um, apply that in our own day, we do have to be careful because we don't have an explicit word from the Lord that, you know, okay, he's denouncing this particular nation or this particular group of people. But the general principles are still there, right? If you oppose God, it's to your own destruction, ultimately, right? Uh, and those are messages that we can bring to others who we see uh, opposing the Lord. Uh, we can warn them of coming judgment and also uh, tell them that there is a way of escape, right, in the gospel. That the Lord is merciful to those who repent and turn from their sin. Um, any questions at this point before we dive into the next section here? Alright, so we're going to look today at chapters 24... 25, 26, and 27. It's a lot to cover. Uh, I wish we had more time because there's a whole lot in here. Um, But as Dr. Master and I were talking, um, he was saying we do need to keep moving because if not, we'll be forever in this book, like three years, right? And we don't want to take that long. But um, this section then is a little interesting. It's a third kind of cycle. um, But one big difference here is the, the, the geographic and political entities are no longer there. One of them is alluded to slightly, Moab. But otherwise, it's actually sort of these nameless cities, actually, that uh, Isaiah is going to speak about. And he really talks about two cities. Um, there is a city of man, is what we might call it, and a city of God. Um, we'll see the word that he uses, uh, the English Standard Version tra- translates it, the wasted city. Um, but the, uh, there's this city, uh, city that leads to Chaos. A city of meaninglessness might be another way to translate it. A city of ruin. And then there is the godly city or the city of righteousness. Uh, One of those cities is going to be destroyed. The other one will be established and ultimately established forever um, by the Lord. So uh, we see right away here um, in in chapter 24, uh, Isaiah begins... This description of the uh, the city of man or the, the ruined city. So he says, starting in verse 1, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered for the Lord has spoken his word. Uh, so notice again, we're sort of, Isaiah is kind of done talking about specific geographic entities, right? This is now the whole world. This is the state of, of all of the world. And he's emphasizing, especially in these first verses, the totality of this, this judgment, right? If you notice, there's all the different areas of life. Mentioned. There's the religious life, right? Um, The priests and the people. There is the household, so the master, the slave, the maid, the mistress. There's also the economic life, buyer and seller, etc. All spheres of life are bound up in this, and it's all people, right? At all levels, not just the leaders, not just the commoners, but but everyone uh, is affected by this. It's it's total desolation. And, uh, again, as Isaiah likes to emphasize, you see in verse 3, for the Lord has spoken this word. It's the Lord's doing. Right? This is God that has, has brought this about. Um, the question, then, is, is why has he done this? And that's where he goes into verses uh, 4 through 6. Isaiah says, The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Let me pause there. What, uh, is there anything that comes to mind when you see that, or hear that imagery? That description of, uh, of the, the world, the way it is? the way it is today and the way that it's always been. hmm So we could we could say that this description extends far beyond Isaiah's own time, right? It's what we see in some sense in the present and and back throughout history. What else? What other ideas might come to mind?
1: Genesis six, the, the corruption
0: of, of the earth. Yeah. Exactly the reason it has always been this way and is still today ultimately is it's harkening back to the fall right and, and the curse uh, that lies on the world because of sin right this is cosmic in uh, in its effects um, it extends um, far and wide right and it's got that imagery uh, of of the initial fall right and and as Paul says right the the the, the whole creation is groaning. Uh, that's the sense we get in reading these, these verses. This is the state of uh, the world under sin and under the, the curse of God because of man's fall. And it's, it's bleak, right? Uh, the, in verse 5, um, the, the, the reason for all of this, Isaiah says, is they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant um the English doesn't quite capture it 's hard to capture in some ways the full extent of this without sort of you know writing out full paragraphs but the the language that Isaiah uses there of transgress the law is gives gives a sense of refusing to live by divine revelation. God has revealed his law, his statutes this is the way that I have made things and the way that you ought to live, and it 's a refusal to live by that revelation um the word that we have translated "violated" actually is is the word "altered." So, in some sense, it's as if people have, instead of not just we've, we've not just um, violated God's law, but we've actually changed it and made our own. We've done something different, right? We've altered it and made a different way. Uh, and then the phrase "broken the everlasting covenant" really conveys at a very uh, deep, deep level a kind of throwing off of the whole covenant relationship. It's a nullifying, in a sense. Not just like, oh, I messed up and I broke, but it's a, it's a, I don't want God for my authority. I refuse to acknowledge that he is the Lord. Uh, and I don't want any part of this covenant relationship. And that's really what what humanity, uh, apart from Christ, is, right? Under sin. Um, the, the result then, in verses 7 through 12... Uh, there's more description of of what it 's like here on this earth the The wine mourns, and the the vine languishes. all the merry hearted sigh the mirth of the tambourines is stilled. the noise of the jubilant has ceased. the mirth of the lyre is stilled, so there's a sense that the joy is all joy is gone and then notice verse ten: The wasted city is broken down, every house is shut up so that none can enter um Very interesting the word that we have translated. Wasted city. Uh, Some translations say ruined city. Some of them say city of chaos. It's actually the same word found in Genesis 1-2. When when the Bible says that the earth was without form and void or empty. So it's formless. So this, in some sense, is what Isaiah is saying the world is like apart from God. There there is no form. It's meaningless. Um, Apart from God's hand of order, uh, it is... Empty, really, right, and this is the state of the city of of man. Um, it's languishing, it's lonely, it's scary. Notice he says that all the houses are shut up, and this is no way to live. Um, and so again, we're left with this kind of deep bleak picture right of of what it's like to live in the city of man. Desolation is left in the city. the gates are battered into ruins. But interestingly, um, there's this, also this brief little picture, as, as I, Isaiah often does, in the midst of judgment. He has these little vignettes right, of hope that break through. And so we see that again here in verses 13 through 16. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. We'll get to that last phrase here in just a moment. But but before that, we see this... You know, even as the song of the, of the city of man is fading uh, and the joy is gone, there's this other song that breaks forth, right? From the people of God praising the Lord, giving glory to him. Uh, and perhaps these are the people, the same people in verse 6, the few men that are left uh, might be them. Isaiah has spoken already uh, in previous chapters of a remnant, right? Or the, the stump of the, the shoot that comes from the stump of the, the root of Jesse, um, these are those people, um, the Lord's people. Uh, we see that in the midst of even all of this desolation, they are able to give praise and glory to God uh, as they trust in him. So there's this little picture uh, of of joy, a glimpse of that. And then again, though, at the end of verse 16, we see the tension that Isaiah himself almost is, is embodied, right? And he says, um, but I say, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me. That same phrase that we saw when he was commissioned, right? When he recognizes his own sin. He's now, in a sense, I think, sort of, uh, I don't want to say caught, but again, he feels that tension of the, the, the Lord is honored and glorified and praised, even in the midst of judgment over his enemies. And yet, he feels the weight of the reality of the sin that exists in this world, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, devastating to him in some sense also as he recognizes what uh what the world has become because of the fall and then in 17 uh, through 20 that goes on with further description uh, of the the city of man uh, and the destruction that's going to come upon it um let me pause there any questions about that city first any thoughts yeah, is,
1: there, is there some irony in that phrase in verse 5 broken the everlasting covenant? Are they, are they really able to break it? I mean, they've broken the, the conditions of it. But if it is an everlasting covenant, can they
0: destroy
1: it? Ah, can they annihilate yeah, it?
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. I think most commentators see this um, as a reference to the initial covenant. Like in the covenant of creation, but you're still right in the sense that ultimately, though it is sort of broken in a sense, right in the in the fall, um, Christ Himself will still uphold it in the end, right, and will and will keep that covenant uh, for us. So, yeah, maybe there is some irony going on there. You're right; you could be right about that. Yeah,
1: um, Joffrey Paul, if memory serves, uh, says that if we uh, we may not have received the covenant, but if we live as if we had, we will be judged by that uh, by that rule, if mm-hmm. you uh, if you will. And so there doesn't have to be an explicit granting of the covenant because God's judgment uh, will apply to us all. And there's a component of it that isn't just Him; it's also us living. Uh, living righteously because it's coming from within, from within us. I'm not saying this very well, but basically, the 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 initial covenant creation extends uh, forward. I think to uh, and even if we've never received it explicitly, like the Jews did or Israel did, yeah, we would still be judged by its uh, by its tenets.
0: So yeah, so well, Paul, so Paul, yeah, exactly. And Paul, and Paul in in Romans one, for example, um, says that all, that all humans right yeah. have God's law written on their heart to some extent. They all know uh, at some deep level what is right and true. Yeah. And and so
1: the creation and the, the the heavens declare mm-hmm. the Lord's yeah. there without excuse.
0: Yeah. So there's a sense in which not only has Adam broken that first covenant, but every single one of us not just in Adam, but also even as we live, has have also broken that covenant ourselves. Yeah. We'll see here in a minute um, some of the allusions that Isaiah makes to God's response to that. Um, as we've seen already, right? Some hints towards the, the Messiah. Um,
1: the uh, The fact that the covenant applies to everybody is... Preparation for the fact that it's uh, the Lord says later that it's not uh, not good enough that Jesus was to die just for the Jews. It was extended beyond. So this, in a, mm-hmm. in, a, in a sense, sets the logical stage for that extension because we all needed
0: it. Yeah, and we'll actually see that here in just a moment as well. Other thoughts? We're going to actually jump over chapter 25. So one thing um, that's a little bit different in terms of especially reading Old Testament that is, I think, very different from our own culture is uh, we often try to read things sequentially, like top to bottom. Uh, there are oftentimes in passages in the Old Testament where actually one of the main truths is kind of in the middle. So you actually kind of go the, the, the top and the bottom, and then you work up to actually something in the middle. It would look sort of like... Uh, if you're kind of outlining, it looks sort of like that, where this is the kind of the key. So we're actually going to come back to chapter 25. We're going to look quickly at um, 26 and parts of 27. So in contrast to this city of man, um, this this city of chaos and meaninglessness, notice uh, in starting in verse 1 of chapter 26, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust, The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. I'm going to stop there. Um, so what are, uh, what are some things that we see here? First, I think this is a kind of a... Uh, a guide of how the righteous, those who are really citizens of the city of God, will live, even though we live in the midst of the city of man, right? Um, so you notice, uh, and especially in verses 2, 3, and 4, right? The, the, the righteous nation, again, this is not a geopolitical nation, right? Those have been done away with now in this section. It's It's no longer Israel and Assyria and Babylon and Egypt. It is now the people of God and all the rest of the people, right? And the people of God, that righteous nation, they are the ones who keep faith. They uh, they, they trust, right? He trusts in you. Uh, his mind is stayed on the Lord. That is, he's thinking of God and, and what is true and right, even in the midst of, of the difficulties around him. Um, this is the, the way that we live. They're not They're not perfect, right? They're not sinless. As verse 16 says, O Lord, in distress they sought you, they poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. So even as as Pastor Phillips um, preached this morning, or if you're going to late service, you'll hear, Lord disciplines those whom he loves, right? Uh, Verse 18 um, speaks of, uh, We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. There's a sense in which um, God's people are saying, We haven't brought about um, salvation. We haven't brought that good news to as many as we would like. We haven't gotten dominion over our enemies. We're still in the world, in this place. We kind of feel like we're languishing at times. It's difficult. Yet, uh, what what does it say? They trust in the Lord, right? They they wait on him. Oh, Lord, we wait for you. Verse 8. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Notice also there's this interplay between the corporate and the individual. So in verse 8 he says, our soul, then in verse 9, my soul, right? Salvation on one level is, is a very individual thing, right? It's between you and the Lord. And yet when you're saved, you're brought into a group of people, this righteous nation um, that is, that is uh, God's people. And so we have to remember that as well as we encourage one another um, in this life, right? in the difficulties that we're facing. Uh, how do we get through that when we see the world around us even in our own day, right? Um, Brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries obviously have it far worse than us, right? Uh, Where it's illegal to perhaps even gather together as a church. Uh, And yet we see our culture more and more um, opposing uh, Christ and what he says is right and true, right? And we'll feel that, I think, more. Uh, And it'll be harder and harder to live as a Christian in some sense. And yet this is where we find hope and strength. It's as we wait for the Lord with the other saints, Um, What else? Let me see what other notes I want to make here. Um, There's this picture at the end. Uh, Look at verses 20 and 21. uh, And think for a moment about what kind of imagery this is conveying. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it, and will no more cover its slain. Obviously, it's a picture of the coming judgment, right? Uh, and the Lord is going to spare His people. What is what are the what is that shutting? You know, come enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you. What might that remind you of? Perhaps other times that the Lord spared His people.
1: Passover,
0: Passover yeah, is one, right? Shut yourselves in and put the door across. Uh, the blood across the door to be spared from that judgment. Any other thoughts of another possible shutting in to avoid judgment? No. Noah, yeah, Noah's ark, right? And The Lord shutting Noah and his family in uh, to to avoid that judgment. So again, the Lord is going to spare His people from the coming judgment. Um, all right, we're running out of time, and I want to get to just a couple of verses in chapter twenty-five um, quickly. Verse twenty or chapter twenty-seven. Uh, the Lord speaks of Israel as a vineyard. And then look at verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. So here we get an allusion again to this kind of universal aspect. Not universal as in every person is saved, but universal as in salvation goes to the ends of the earth. It's not just people of Israel. And also go to Abraham's covenant of him numbering the stars. Yeah, exactly. Yep, All of that's bound up. Um, In verses 12 and 13, so Isaiah is again kind of foretelling what's going to happen. They're going to be exiled, but he's going to gather the people of God back from these places. In that day, from the river Euphrates, that's in the north, to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria, and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So God's going to gather in his people uh, to worship him and then flip back over to chapter 25 and we get this great picture of what that day will be like. And then notice at the end, I'm going to read 6 through 9, but notice at the end, again, this this understanding of how it is that the people of God have lived in the meantime. So verse 6 of 25, he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, and a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. Notice again, all nations, all peoples, right? This is not just Israel and, and Judah. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. Don't think of that just as people won't die anymore, but this is the unraveling of the curse, right? That God is rolling back the effects of the fall in swallowing up death. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So you see, we, we, we see this in the New Testament as well, right? The, in one sense, we can say the Lord has saved us. That's a, a Accomplished. We have been saved. And yet there's also a sense in which we're waiting for that ultimate salvation that will come. And that's the hope that gets us through the difficulties of this life. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts or questions before I close this in prayer?
1: Um. 24, it says the wine mourns, and it's talking about the judgment, and then
0: and chapter 25 it says the well wine, so in this new um, city, the wine and everything will be so much more than the cursed earth that we live in now. Yeah. One of the challenges in dealing with big chunks like this is, is we can't go to all of those little illusions, but they're all over the place, as I was studying it. Uh, over the past couple of days, I kept thinking, like you could spend hours talking about all of these things. Isaiah is a master of bringing things like that to bear, and even in in many of these verses, he's referring back to the first two cycles. Uh, it's fascinating. If you have the time, go read it carefully again this afternoon. But let me pray. We'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the hope that it holds out to us uh, as we wait for your final salvation in this difficult world. We see uh, all around us those who are opposed. To you, and opposed to Christ, and opposed to the gospel, Uh, Lord, help us to encourage one another uh, to be those who wait faithfully, trusting in you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.